Let's talk e-learning. This is Dr. Leroy Hill, Dean School of Distance Education at the University of the Southern Caribbean. This podcast series shares success tips on e-learning, distance education, and online teaching excellence. Uh, the views shared by faculty guest speakers are their own. Today, I am talking with Professor Michael Simonson. Michael Simonson is Professor of Instructional Technology and Distance Education at Nova Southeastern University, Florida. Professor Simonson earned his PhD from the University of Iowa um, in Instructional Systems. He was named Professor of the Year at the Fisher School of Education for 2013 and 2012 and 13, sorry. Uh, Professor Simonson has authored four major textbooks dealing with distance education, instructional uh, technology, instructional computing, and instructional media. Uh, Professor Simonson has published over 200 scholarly publications and in excess of 250 uh, pro um, professional presentations dealing with distance education and instructional technology. He is uh, editor of two academic journals and uh, one yearly convention proceedings and also co-edits a book series. His current research area of uh, research interest is in uh, the fusion of distance education in organization. Uh, Professor Simonson was honorably discharged as a captain uh, from the, universe, uh, the United States Marine Corps uh, and in, 20, in 1999, uh, Professor Simonson advanced uh, the idea of equivalence theory as a way of contextualizing uh, distance education as an equivalent approach to traditional teaching and learning um, in the distance education setting. Today, we would like to welcome Professor Simonson to Let's Talk E-Learning. Welcome, Professor, and thank you for contributing to this podcast. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you, Dean Hill. I am honored to be here. This will be a pleasure. Thank you. So, Professor, in 1999, in your 1999 profession on equivalency theory, you pushed the concept of distance education as being an appropriate approach that should provide equivalent experience of the learning experience for all students, um, distant and local, um, as a way of establishing equivalent e educational experience. Uh, share with us how how did you come about um, come about um, the idea of of the of the equivalency theory, and what are some of the instructional foundations on the foundational underpinnings that um, that um, sets it apart uh, to other theories? Thank you. Yes, I'd love to do that. Let me just reiterate very quickly what I mean by equivalency theory. That is, when we teach at a distance, we shouldn't be trying to present equal learning experiences for every student. Rather, we should try to identify what we call equivalent learning experiences. Since distance learners and local learners, uh, maybe synchronous learners and asynchronous learners, are really in a different learning environment, we shouldn't be trying to duplicate or make equal everything. Now, that sounds a little obvious at, at one respect, but it also is something that uh, for the last 20 years, 21 years now, uh, 
I and my research associates have been investigating um, equivalency theory. Let me tell you a story. Um, in 1998, the university where I was located, Iowa State University, was part of a major project to infuse uh, and improve education throughout the tertiary schools, the high schools in the state of Iowa. One of the strategies that we were implementing was there weren't, a, since there weren't enough science teachers, to link science teachers together where one school would have a chemistry teacher, one school would have a biology teacher, one school would have a physics teacher, and they would share their expertise at a distance. So on a Mondays at three o'clock, the chemistry teacher would take the leave. Mondays at 10 o'clock, the biology teacher would take the league and so on. Some administrators thought that was not only a great idea, but since it was going to be implemented, it needed to be modified. And one of the modifications, which led us to start thinking about equivalency theory, is they decided that the students in a school that had the live teacher would be at an advantage over students who were listening and learning from that teacher remotely or at a distance. So they decided that the on-site students had to go to another room so that they were learning at a distance too. Well, that didn't seem right to us. So my research group at the time, Technology Research and Evaluation Group, started to do some investigations and some surveys and examine what was happening. What we realized is that there was this misconception that in order to make education fair, it had to be the same for everybody. Now, anybody who has studied education for very long knows that that's a fallacy, even though it seems like it ought to be uh, acceptable. Look at what special ed teachers have told us for years. They have what are called IEPs. In other words, they tailor the educational experiences for the students in their special ed classes individually so each student has the opportunity to learn individually. So we advocated equivalency theory. And what that means is that as we design instruction for students at a distance and practically for students in almost any learning environment, we should try to tailor that instruction for the individual learner rather than all learners be being uh, straddled with or required to learn in exactly the same way as other students. So, the Technology Research and Evaluation Group and I uh, proposed in a textbook this idea of equivalency theory and we asked others to help us investigate it. And for the last 10 years, and I'll talk more about that in a second here, uh, 20 years, uh, those investigations have been ongoing. Dr. Hill? Thank you. I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean this, is, this is really um, insightful because we, we think that um, as educators, really particularly in the distance education setting, that um, that everything must be done the same way, even though as educators we know that we have differentiation and we have, uh, and it's more or less meeting the learner where they are. But it is it is well established from research, um, and we I, I know that you cite Moore's um, conceptualization in your in your writing and narrative, um, the need for learner autonomy in distance education, and and when we compare this to traditional education, we, th there is there is some, there's the difference. Um, however, many learners in recent times have been forced to subscribe to some form of, of distance education 
um, be it uh, remote learning or adopting uh, a blend of synchronous or asynchronous to continue the teaching and learning process. Now, what would you, what would advice would you give against all of this to facilitators and um, uh, persons who now have to shift uh, to the learning? How do they cope with distance education in, in this particular COVID and even post COVID setting? Yeah. And, and there are best practices, uh, Dr. Hill, and I want to talk about them. And, but oftentimes when speakers such as myself talk about best practices, when I hear them talk, I say, well, where does that come from? What is his background? How does he know what he's saying is accurate? Um, we listen to the science uh, experts today talking about the virus, and we want to know what their expertise is. And most often, they provide us with that expertise, so we know that the science they cite is, in fact, accurate. So let me back up a second and talk about the science. The science behind this equivalency theory and appropriate application of distance education is longstanding. As a matter of fact, if we go back, and I'm sure we could go back further, but some of us remember the programmed instruction and teaching machine yes. movements of the 50s and 60s that, that fostered the idea of individualized instruction. Well, for many reasons, that approach, while successful, was not very popular. And we could maybe say the same thing about distance education today to a certain extent. But the research to support the programmed instruction and teaching machine movement generated some ideas. One of the most important, I think, is the 90-90 rule, which says that 90% of any school content can be learned by 90% of any population of people given enough time. Now, we know in schools, time is not open-ended. We have to have semesters or terms or quarters or days or class periods. But that tells us then that if we want to reach learners successfully, that we need to think about how we can provide those learning experiences that, uh, that students need. And, and that idea, the idea of the programmed instruction movements, then was adopted and adapted by the film movement member uh, 50 years ago, we were going to be learning everything on film, and then it was on video, and then it, when video became widely available, and then it was computer-assisted instruction, and more recently, it's been distance education. Uh, the MOOC movement, massive open online courses, there have been a number, a number of all variations in this uh, rush to technology uh, that have evolved over the last half century, most of which have been successful in terms of promoting learning, but unsuccessful for other reasons. Now that's something for another podcast we could talk about. Yeah. But if we look today at what the individualized learning movement tells us, there are some basic principles that can be applied. And, and they are longstanding in the research. The first is chunking of information. That doesn't sound very scientific, but it, what it really means is Effective instruction is organized into single concept building blocks. The building blocks is, block is the single concept around which instruction is developed. If we take a number of building blocks, single concept blocks, organize them together into specific topics and then into modules and then into units, we can structure instruction in a logical way so that the novice, the students that we're working with, the ones that really are in class learning because they want to learn about what we as teachers have an expertise in, it's, it's, it's much more effective. Now that has nothing to do with whether you're learning at a distance or not, 
but it's a basic principle of how instruction can be best applied. And you've mentioned autonomy. Uh, it's interesting, we've done a lot of study of autonomy. What we have found, the concept of autonomy in the distant learner, is that if the more autonomous you are, the more uh, you adopt the ability to learn on your own, the, the more, not the easier, but the easier it'll be for you to adapt to learning at a distance. Okay. But autonomy is not something that is required for distance education. It's something that should be understood by the designer of instruction. And I think uh, Michael Moore says that. Uh, I, I think even Otto Pater says it in the industrialized uh, theories of learning that, that are somewhat at the foundation of distance education. Um, it, also, there is this conception about interaction, and sometimes a misconception. Interaction is a critical component of all learning, especially learning at a distance. But does that mean interaction is the most important thing? Well, of course not. What that means is there needs to be a facility for appropriate interaction between students and students, students and instructors, instructors and students, and students and instructors and content. Mm -hmm. So we need to be able to access the materials. We need to be able to access one another. And of course, we need to be able to access our instructor. That's one of the reasons that the individualized instruction movement kind of failed, except when it was adopted by, adapted by people like the uh, audio tutorial movement, um, mm -hmm. where there was an instructor involved. Because the interaction between student and instructor is critical. Now, that's just as easy, not as easy maybe, but it's, it's certainly easier now. We have uh, tools like Zoom and WebEx and, and other kinds of interactive video systems. Um, and uh, uh, the idea of treating all students the same, we have learned from the individualized instruction movement and the, and, and the massive amount of research on that, why it was successful and why it was uh, not so popular, is that that th these strategies will in fact work. So there, there is a, a huge body of literature that supports the best practices in distance education. Now we could go down that list, um, but, but I, I sense that uh, uh, that's maybe another podcast for another day also. Uh, yeah. Dr. Hill. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, I mean, uh, I mean, these are, these are some excellent suggestions and, 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 and teaching approaches. Is, is there any takeaway thing that you would share with a, a very brand fresh uh, teacher who to the distance education online, who's now coping with COVID? You've mentioned chunking, um, but uh, you've mentioned the whole idea of the experience if, if, if you have to give a, a top three, I mean, if you have to give a top three in terms of points and tips, which would be our key takeaway for those new um, persons? Because, you know, we, we have to continue teaching in, uh, remotely. Um, many universities have decided that they will uh, continue doing so um, in, in fall. And so this gives an opportunity for us to um, uh, extend the learning for our students. But at the same time, many teachers are, are trying ways to cope. Yes. And, and that's a word that I just used in an article that I've written about the, the remote teaching concept that has been forced on a lot of teachers domestically in the United States. Teachers have learned to cope. Well, they shouldn't have to cope. So my suggestion to a new teacher is that you're going to, in the future, be a distance educator 
whether you thought you were going to be when you entered the education community or not. And, and most teachers enter because they have an expertise, but they also have a, a, a desire to want to share that expertise with others, in other words, teaching. So the skills of the teacher are not what we, just what we see in the classroom where you can stand up in front of people, you can work with small groups, you can interact with them on a, a, a personal human level. That's critical and important. Learn how to do those same things when it's not you and I next to each other, by each other, or close to each other all the time. So learn about these skills because it's pretty obvious. Now, I'm starting to sound like an advocate for distance education, which I guess I am, <laughs> but I, I like to call myself a skeptical advocate. Um, we just shouldn't say distance education. We should say, all right, how do we do it correctly? It's pretty obvious that the need to teach learners at a distance is not going to evaporate and go away. It's going to be with us. And the uh, terribleness of this uh, virus has not done anything positive, but it has made us realize that there are a set of skills that we as educators should have so that we can cope, as you've said, and as I've said in some of the things that I've written and talked about, in, a, in the most effective way we can. Learn how to be a distance educator. Remember, it's not distance education, it's not face-to-face -face education. There's a continuum, and along that continuum from traditional face-to-face -face instruction to uh, distance education where the learners and instructor are all in different places, maybe even in different times, um, most education in the future, and if I were to be a futurist, is going to exist somewhere along that continuum. And how we get there is the critical thing. What, what, what one other uh, Oh, concept that I, I always promote when I get a chance, and that is we need faculty development, staff development, continuing all the time, because we are now, we are now like uh, a one-person band. We're not just delivering instruction. We're not just working with children, a lot, working with adults, but we have to manipulate the hardware. We have to understand how it works. We have to help other people understand the technologies so we, we have a lot more responsibility. So the idea of instructional design help is critical to success for those of us that are teaching at a distance. Yeah, and I, 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 yeah, I, I thank you for that. I mean, and I suppose in terms of support for the um, faculty and students in, in extending the capacity building um, is crucial to success um, in, in teaching and learning, but more so for the distance education. Um, so I, I want to thank you. You've given, uh, this is a time frame of, of, of podcast, and I want to thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, I'll be following more of your research, um, and so I want to give you the uh, opportunity to have any, any uh, takeaway, key takeaway or final um, recommendations as we leave and complete the podcast. Uh, it's been my pleasure. Uh, I am uh, privileged to have the chance to, to talk with you. I hope we will stay in putts. Let's do this again sometime. I'm, uh, the, the, the technologies, while I love to come to Trinidad, I don't mind doing these things out of my basement here in Iowa. So uh, let's stay in touch and thank you very much and keep up the good work that you're doing. Thank you.